Good evening. I am Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. And it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's guest, Sharon Ewell Foster. And I want to begin with some, um, stating something that she wrote, um, and I quote, I write with the hope that the words I give, if they are given in truth, will entertain, uplift, bless, heal, and serve. I write because I hope that my own struggles to live a truer life will help someone else. I write because it is my calling and I couldn't run from it anymore. Believe me, I tried. Finally, I've stopped running and I'm so glad I did. Ms. Foster is a critically acclaimed, award-winning author, speaker, and teacher. She is the author of the Christie Award-winning Passing by Samaria, Essence Bestseller, Ain't No River, and five other works of fiction. Sharon's books have won her wide acclaim and a loyal following that crosses market, gender, and racial boundaries. She was born in Marshall, Texas. She was raised in East St. Louis, and she lives somewhere near Baltimore. <laughs> she is the only daughter among five children, and she states that not only could she, um, not only did she know as much about wrestling as she did baking. She has two. She has two children: a daughter, Lena, Linnea. Linnea, sorry, and a son, teenage, named Chase. It is my pleasure to introduce and welcome to the Pratt Library, Sharon Ewell Foster. Good to be back home, and I'm late because I went to New Psalmist because when I come home, I have to go to church, and um, and I couldn't leave till the benediction was over because I'm a good member, and I know not to leave before the benediction, so thank you all for being patient, and it's good to be here this afternoon with you. And she's absolutely right. I did run from writing. And I must say, I also need to update my, my bio because my teenage son is now 27 years old. <laughs> and he is a opera singer now. And he's singing with um, the Lyric Opera of Chicago. They're doing a production of Showboat. So he's probably singing right now, even as, as I speak. And my daughter, um, I won't tell you her age, but it's older than my son. So I'll tell you. And she's on her way in once she gets through parking. I did run from it. Um, I'm going to talk to you definitely about Nat Turner, but also um, today in church somebody said, make sure that when you come out that you tell somebody else the story of your coming out. And I was living in this area, actually living in Glen Burnie for a long time, and was working at uh, the Pentagon and worked at Fort Meade, Maryland. And <clears throat> I had a good government job uh, <laughs> with benefits 
and a pretty good paycheck. And here comes another friend of mine, hey, coming in the back door. But the ends never seem to meet together. And um, I know none of you have that trouble where you're getting a check, but the ends don't meet together. <laughs> but my ends didn't meet together. And, um, and so I'd always be fussing in my mind about why were my ends meeting together and why wasn't I president of the United States? Like, what was the problem? And it came to me one day, sitting in my good government job in a dress for success suit with my hair pulled back in a big ponytail with a big bow, that what I was supposed to be doing was writing. And I didn't want to write. I was always writing. I was always the writing go-to girl. But I never wrote creatively because it made me feel naked. You know, I felt like all of me was exposed to everybody. So I ran and ran and ran. And finally, I couldn't run anymore. And I started writing. And within less than six months, I had a publisher, an agent, um, and had won an award for being the most promising writer. And it just changed my whole life. So I'm telling that story because I know there are other people in the room that are running from things that they're supposed to be doing. And they're going, well, next year, when, it, when the bills are paid off, when the kids are grown, when this job gives out. So I'm the fairy that's come to tell you tomorrow has come. Okay. There's no more running, that thing that you've been running from. Go ahead and do it because my testimony is that it changed my whole life and I'm so much happier. And I kick myself now going, why did I wait so long when this was the thing I wanted to do all along and just didn't know it. So, okay, so I told you about me. I, um, before that, I had worked for the Department of Defense, usually always working with uh, men. I was an instructor. I was a um, logistician. I was a resource information analyst. Lots of things and hopping from job to job, mostly because I was running from what I should really be doing. But once I started writing, I've just been writing, writing, writing. So <clears throat> I had um, fast forward to 2000, I guess like 2005 or six. I had been writing, and um, you know how on the outside to people, everything in your life always looks like it's perfect, but your own life, you're like, mm, why can't my life be perfect? Well, lots of things were going right, but there was some stuff that was going wrong. And so I was, I really, I prayed, and I said, God, you know, if you're done with me writing, I can do something else. I can get a job at the post office. I know how to get another government job or go to Wendy's. So just let me know. <laughs> Wendy's? It's, uh, um, what do you call it? It's, um, what is it? Work that's honest. It's honest work, working at Wendy's. And um, the next day when I woke up, all I could think about was Nat Turner. And I remembered when I was a little girl, my parents were avid readers, and my mother had a copy of William Styron's book, The Confessions of Nat Turner, sitting on her dresser, I mean, on her nightstand. And I read everything my parents read. Nobody stopped me, so I was reading everything. 
Um, but I never read that book, and I don't know why. But I could see it that morning when I woke up. And then the other thing that came to me was that I had a professor when I was in college who taught me about Nat Turner. She talked about Nat Turner. She talked about um, Ethiopia and about the cathedrals in Ethiopia and about the images of Mary and Christ in those cathedrals being black. And all of this stuff started coming back to me. Another thing that came back to me was she told me that um, this professor, I was struggling again. It was another time when I was struggling. And she told me that I should be writing and that I wrote, um, there were so many history stories that needed to be told and that I wrote well enough to tell them. And I heard her, I was 19 when she told me, I heard her, but I couldn't hear her. But all this time, some 30 years later, <laughs> I could hear her again telling me. And so I started doing research on Nat Turner. And um, I went to, does anybody know Bobby Jones? Bobby Jones Gospel? Okay. Well, <laughs> I had this idea that I, as a writer, needed to go to Bobby Jones Gospel. He does these workshops all the time. And even as I'm going, I'm going, why am I going to Bobby Jones Gospel? I'm not singing nothing. I just got a bunch of books. And these people are going to be looking at me like I'm crazy. Number one, because I didn't have on anything shiny. Because you, all of you, all the people that know Bobby Jones Gospel, it's a lot of shiny bling bling. And, and I thought, I'm not going to fit in. What am I doing here? But I ended up there talking to a guy who was a big fan of Nat Turner's. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but he asked me what was the next thing I was going to write about. And Nat Turner just popped out of my mouth. Oh. So then, I, even as I said it, I thought, nobody's going to give me a contract to write a book about Nat Turner. He is not America's number one hero. Um, but I kept going. And, um, and the other thing that was on my mind was that I needed to try to find the actual trial transcripts from Nat Turner's trial. Now, I know there's at least one lawyer in the room. <laughs> and the, the idea that you're going to find trial transcripts from 1831 for anybody is pretty far-fetched that you're going to find slave trial records from 1831, not going to happen. But it was, I, it was like I had to find them. And <clears throat> so I kept doing research, and I put a Google alert on my computer. Any Google fans who know what a Google alert is? Well, what did you do? A, go to Google's homepage, do a, and you can put in a search term, and it'll give you back anything in the news that appears about whatever the search term is. So I put in Nat Turner. <laughs> um, but there's a porn star named Nat Turner. <clears throat> so I was getting lots of email. <laughs> and... I was getting lots of email, but none of it was about the Nat Turner I wanted to know about. I was scared to open the email um, of, about this other Nat Turner. So, But eventually, when I got ready to turn it off, the day I got ready to turn it off, I got some email. And it was not about the porn star. <laughs> it was about the real Nat Turner. 
And there was this guy in Southampton County, Virginia. You all excuse me. <laughs> there was this guy in Southampton County, Virginia, who was now the clerk of the court, court of the county, talking about Nat Turner. So I called the reporter and schmoozed with the reporter. And I told her how great her story was, told her I had read some other things she had written. And I did. I told the truth because I went back and found some other stories and told her I was trying to get in touch with this guy. She gave me his contact information. Well, it turned out that this guy was a descendant of some of the people that got killed in Nat Turner's uprising. Ah. And it also turned out that this guy, as clerk of the court, knew where the transcripts were. Ah. <laughs> and he told me I could come and see them, and he would take me on a tour to see the route that Nat Turner was supposed to go. Ah. And so I went to Southampton County and stood in the courthouse where I couldn't have stood, you know, 100 years ago, no way. Um, but I stood there, and, I, and there were the transcripts, the handwritten transcripts from Nat Turner's trial. I, you know, I always know the history geeks in the room, because when I say it, they go, <sighs> and the non-geeks are just like, whatever, just move on with the story. Um, <laughs> But so I'm here and I have my hands on the transcripts. And first of all, as a, a, a history geek, I know I should have gloves on touching these documents. But the man didn't ask. And I was like, the other people need to wear their gloves. I'm going to just touch it this time. So I touched them and I'm reading. And the primary historical document that all the history is based on, that William Styron's book was based on, is this pamphlet called The Confessions of Nat Turner. And there was a lawyer, Thomas Gray, in 1831, who intimates that he was Nat Turner's attorney and that Nat Turner confessed and that that confession was the basis for him being hanged. Well, <clears throat> I'm standing here, and I'm expecting to see Thomas Gray's name, only Thomas Gray's name's not in the transcript, because Thomas Gray was not Nat Turner's attorney. So, you know, in military school when you're teaching and you want people to remember something for the test, you stomp on the ground. Okay, so who was Nat Turner's attorney? Was it Thomas Gray, true or false? Again, false. false. Okay, so it was not Thomas Gray. And Nat Turner didn't plead guilty. Did Nat Turner plead guilty? No. Um, <laughs> and Nat Turner didn't confess. There was no confession in the record. Did Nat Turner confess? You all are good. You all are, you have a hundred going right now. And so I'm standing there and you all, all of us are made differently. I have a fact checker inside of me. So when I meet people, say I met you for the first time, I'm listening to what people say. So if you say consistent things to me, 
I turn my fact checker off because I go, this is an honest person. I don't need to keep track. But if you say inconsistent things to me, my fact checker is like, got to listen to everything. And, um, and it's the same way when I'm reading. So I'm reading, and the stuff I'm expecting to see is not there. So my fact checker is like in overdrive. It's like Kmart blue light special. Because I know something has happened. And I know at that point that the book that I thought was going to take me six months to write, that it's going to take me much longer. Um, ultimately, it took me like five years between research and writing. And so I put into, actually they have both books out because the second part just released this month. And so <clears throat> I put in those two books everything I could find about Nat Turner, everything I could tell you the real truth about what happened to Nat Turner. And um, actually I studied the Nat Turner's transcripts for years. My pants are caught in my shoe. That's what I'm pulling. Um, <laughs> my pants, my, um, I studied those transcripts. I studied transcripts related to the other related trials, because there were more than 40, I think, trials, slave trials related to Nat Turner's. I also studied Governor Floyd's handwritten diary, because there were lots of clues and hints in there. This was like history detectives, you know, finding out what was really gone, going on. And <clears throat> so I, what I offer you today is as close as I could get to the truth about what really happened to Nat Turner. That he didn't confess, that he pled innocent. Actually, everybody that was put on trial pled innocent. And part of the story has been that it was just like an impromptu uprising. Well, you don't get a whole bunch of folks all to plead innocent, just impromptu. This was obviously some serious planning going on. And it wasn't just black people involved in the uprising. There were some Native Americans involved, and there was at least one white guy named Barry Newsom. So this is a very different story than the story we've been told. It wasn't a general uprising against all whites. There was a very um, small select group that was, that was targeted. You see the same last names coming up over and over again, Whitehead, Francis, Newsom. Um, there's somebody else that I'm forgetting. I'm sorry? Turner. Um, and there's somebody else, I just can't think. Oh, you all, this is my daughter, <laughs> Linnea, whose age I didn't tell you, right? <laughs> so you all tell her, I didn't tell her age, right? Okay, so, oh, she's giving me dirty looks. So. Um, but anyway, so it was, it was a very select group. And as a matter of fact, the names uh, belonged to family names that were um, deacons, trustees at a church that Nat Turner's father built. And oh, by the way, um, in uh, Thomas Gray's pamphlet, he says that Nat Turner's father was African. But some of the local historians say that Nat Turner's slave-owning father was actually Nat Turner's father. Oh. oh, we've never heard of that, slave owners being the parent of slave children. Yes, it's true. And um, 
And actually, part of what makes me believe it is that the governor put out a reward for Nat Turner. And on the, Nat, on the reward, it described Nat Turner as bright. Now we, now we say fair skin, light skin, but people used to say somebody was bright. And it said that he was bright, but not a mulatto. Of course, my fact checker went, doo, 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 doo. you know Nat Turner was a mulatto because they never would have said he was not a mulatto unless he really was a mulatto. Um, so I tell you as much as I can about him and that I came away, I, I started the story try, um, with the idea that I was gonna be objective, that I was gonna write from different people's perspectives and that I was just gonna let it come out the way it came out, that I wanted Nat Turner to have his day in court. But as I went further and further, um, I stopped. I thought, you know what, this man was a hero. And if it was my son who had given his life, I wouldn't want somebody just step, standing back going, well, maybe, well, maybe not. That it was important um, to tell the truth. And the truth was that he was a hero. That if you look at the things that the people did who wrote the story about him, those were the people that were breaking the law. Um, I don't have a book up here to read, do I? So I'm gonna read a little bit, and then I'm gonna let you all ask questions, if you have questions. Um, so this book is not just about Nat Turner, it's about, um, the place where he lived, it's about the people there, friends and foes. It's also about abolitionists uh, that were involved at the time and growing stronger. And so in the books, <clears throat> excuse me, Harriet Beecher Stowe, you all know Harriet Beecher Stowe? Well, she's most famous for Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a story of a passive approach to slavery. But she wrote a book called Dread, a tale of the Great Dismal Swamp that was about Nat Turner. And she's not very famous for that one. And if you go, <laughs> and if you go to even her um, center and mention Dread, they kind of go like, <laughs> so, um, but I think Dread is a much better book, perhaps because of where I sit in the kingdom. So this is chapter one of the first one, Boston, 1856. And this is from Harriet Beecher Stowe's perspective. There was a bounty on her head. What more did they want from her? Had she done enough? Harriet retied the ribbon under her chin, tucked her graying hair underneath, and straightened her black bonnet. She wrapped her black woolen shawl more tightly around her and settled back into the carriage. It was early spring in New England, chill in the air, and the morning's fog had not yet burned away. The click of horses' hooves on the pavement reminded her of a metronome. She scooted further back in her seat so that her feet dangled over the edge like a child's. She was really, really short. A lie was an evil thing. It did not seem so. Sometimes, in fact, it seemed like a kindness, a simple, small thing. 
Harriet watched a small fawn-colored spider scurry determinately along the window of the coach in which she sat. She looked past the spider out to the gray morning and sighed. She still ached for her baby son, Samuel. She still saw the cherry blush of fever on his cheeks. She still saw him suffering and fitful as cholera tore his insides apart. The worst was that she could do nothing to stop it, nothing to comfort him. The worst of it was the powerlessness and letting him go. How could she let him go? How could she live through seeing the light leave him of hearing his last exhale? Could any mother survive losing her son? She sighed again, focusing on the spider. A lie seemed so innocent, but told over and over again, it created a delusion. And two lies or three lies told over and over again were a web. The spider climbed and then retreated, finally reaching its web in the window corner. Lies and webs, they seemed impossible to untangle, but perhaps that was the work. Perhaps even harder was separating the different truths. There were more, the more she studied, the more she realized there was the truth of history, the truth of culture, and then there was God's truth. Every day she was more convinced that she could not read and understand the Old Testament without looking at it through the lens of love and truth. It frightened her sometimes to think these things. Her father, whom she loved, took the law just as it was written, but she was coming to believe that the law was nothing without love. Her father would disapprove, others would disapprove. At 45, she sometimes wanted to turn back and write only canning and homemaking to only write sweet romances or about travel. That was her plan before Uncle Tom. Others would approve. But truth was insolent and did not care that she was frightened. Truth did not care that she trembled when she uncovered lies that had been told. Truth did not care that the web was sticky or that she was frightened of the spider. Truth woke her at night and sent her, un sent her on unplanned journeys. She glimpsed it under stairways and, bidden, um, and hidden among leaves on tree boughs. It sang to her, it brandished its fist at her. And then from the next book, this is from Nat Turner's perspective. Cross Keys area outside Jerusalem, Virginia. The town where he was hanged was called Jerusalem, Virginia. It's now Cortland, Virginia. Christmas, 1830. Ned Turner felt in his pocket to be certain the gunpowder mixture was still dry. He knew exactly the time and the place he would use it. He had been planning for months. He was on his way to meet the others. It had been a cruel winter and snow in Virginia was most often one or two fingers deep or none at all. But this winter it had been heavy and so cold that the top of it was frozen. When he stepped for an instant, he was above it. Then shoeless, he was calf deep again in the icy powder. At first, cold pain shot up his knee and through his body with each step he took. 
Soon his feet were frozen and he numbly made his way past isolated farms and houses where he smelled the aroma of meat roasting outside. But he could not breathe deeply. The frozen air stung his lips, the membranes of his nose, and ached his teeth. The snow had snapped the brittle backs of withered corn plants. It covered the roads like, thick, like a thick blanket, so he barely recognized the fences and places he knew. The trees were his guide. The trees were in the beginning, and they had witnessed it all. They had seen husbands and sons dragged from their homes, castrated men dripping from their branches. They had seen women torn from the breasts of their families and raped underneath the moon and the stars. They had seen them beaten, burned, starved, and mutilated. The trees had witnessed it all. Their arms had borne the weight of the torture. He followed the trees, <clears throat> each one a signpost and a threat, past sleeping apple trees, their feet and hair covered by the snow blanket. He ducked underneath, leaf, uh, ducked underneath leafless boughs and touched aged trunks covered with bark, rough even against his numb bare hands. The trees were black and crooked against the snow's stark white. In warmer times, their hands and arms gave fruit, and all the while told stories of death, strange fruit dangling from their limbs. If the trees held the land's memories, then his mother held his. You are a man of two continents, she told him. Your father is a man of America. They are the people of justice. Thank you, sweetie. An eye for an eye, at least that is what they say. But I am African. Ethiopians are children of mercy, and it does not yet appear which will be strongest in you. Um, Nat Turner's mother, according to local historians, was Ethiopian. And so um, all of those stories that my teacher told me came back and came into play when I wrote the books. So um, this is my, these books are my homage to the slaves to our heroes. You know, so many times we look over them and we want to look to Africa for heroes and look past the people who gave their lives here. But writing these books, I realized how much, how great they were and that they are American heroes, that whether they were um, more whether they were quietly, whether they quietly survived so that we could survive, or whether they took up arms, they were all heroes, and that they should be honored as American heroes. So I'm going to sit my sweating self down and answer your questions. Good afternoon, and thank you for your research. Oh, thank you. Thank Did you. you were you able to find information about his family and what kind of lifestyle he had, brothers and sisters and whatever? Um, I was able to find out that he was married. He had a wife named Cherry. And um, and what confirmed for me that he was married was there was an article where um, it talked about some of the um, militia leaders and other people going to her house, dragging her out and beating her because they were looking for his papers. So he had a wife. 
Her name was Cherry, and he had at least one child. I think he probably had more than, uh, than one, but he had at least one named Riddick. And um, so, and uh, as I told you, his mother was supposed to have been Ethiopian. His father was a slave owner. He was a preacher, um, and he was known for going throughout the area, throughout uh, the Southampton County, and even as far as Norfolk preaching. Um, so he was um, a literate slave. He could read. He could write. Um, recently, they just found his uh, journal, his jur uh, not his journal, his Bible, was just donated to the National Museum for African-American history and culture. And so we knew that his Bible existed, but um, someone just turned it in. And so there was handwriting in his Bible. At least that's the story. I haven't gotten to touch it or see it yet. Uh, but he was, was literate and able to read. And this at a time when 70% of the white population couldn't read. So he was a very unusual person. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. I'm intrigued by just the fact that he had a trial and that there was a suggestion that he might have and the others might have had a lawyer, yes. um, whether or not it was Gray or not. Uh, so I wondered if you could, um, first of all, comment a little bit on what you might have learned about the criminal justice system as it pertained to slaves. Okay. And then second of all, um, if as a result of the, the uprising, if it generated um, additional harsh laws against um, uh, people who were slaves or what the consequences were for the community. Thank you. All right. Um, Yes, there were trials. Um, actually, what happened in the aftermath of the uprising or revolt, um, I, as I said, there were over five, 50 white people that were killed. But in the aftermath of that, um, militias from all over Virginia and all over North Carolina descended on the town. And they were killing anything black that they could get their hands on. So whether they were slave or free, whether they were involved in the revolt or not, um, they were killing people so much so that in Southampton County now there's still a street sign called Blackhead Signpost Road. And if you drive past it, you just think the blackheads used to live down this road. But it was the place where they were decapitating people and putting their heads up on poles. Um, there was a congressman involved um, after the uprising. There's always a congressman involved who's spreading stories to the press. So if you think it just happened now, you're wrong. It was going on in 1831. There was a congressman named James Tresvant. And um, he was also a militia leader. He was a colonel in the militia, which meant that he would have taken part in, in all the torture and the massacre. And when I try to describe it to people, I say, imagine Rwanda in the United States in Virginia in 1831. It was like that. Um, well, 
this congressman who was feeding stories to the press had also gone to the governor, uh, John Floyd, and told him that two or 300 runaway slaves had escaped from the Great Dismal Swamp and, attap and attacked uh, Jerusalem, Virginia. And he asked the governor to send in troops. So the governor sent in troops. And um, General Epps was the general leading the troops. And so when they got to, um, to Cortland, which was Jerusalem back then, they were expecting to find all these slaves that they needed to quell, but instead it was militia. And so they ended up, um, they threatened the militia and told them if they didn't stop that they were going to turn their arms on them. And I guess, uh, uh, and then they went around with people from the town helping them uh, to try to find people that might be involved because they weren't sure who had done it. And, and that's part of my reasoning for saying that it was well planned. At the end of the uprising, they didn't know who had been involved. And so they went around picking up people that they thought were um, belligerent or were likely to be involved. Now, mind you, Nat Turner wasn't picked up at that point. Um, Nat Turner's name didn't come up until trials had started. The first day of trials, no mention of Nat Turner. Second day of trials, no mention of Nat Turner. Third day of trials. I think it was the third day when his name finally came up. Um, but um, So they put people in jail, and then they started having trials for them. The slaves couldn't speak on their behalf at the trials. Their uh, defense attorney would speak on their behalf. And um, so Thomas Gray was defense attorney, I, I think, five times. And it was usually defending a slave that belonged to a guy named Nathaniel Francis. Nathaniel Francis was 24 years old at the time of the uprising. And when it, really there was a scam going on, so it, it's hard to to tell you what was going on in the legal system without telling you the scam. Um, but you all have to promise to buy the book and tell the truth because I'm giving you good skinny stuff. So um, Nathaniel Francis, um, the, the farmers in this area, first of all, they were so poor. Um, it wasn't like the stories we normally see with big plantation homes and mint juleps and all that stuff. These people were poor, like poor poor. And uh, uh, and the farmers were living themselves in houses that looked more like slave shacks, maybe like two or three outhouse size houses put together. And um, so they were really poor. And, and, and in a year's time, a farmer in Southampton County might make like $150 a year. And that's compared to other counties where they were making like four or $500 a year. So once they started doing slave trials, I'm sure they very quickly learned that if you turn in a slave and the slave was convicted, you get $300, $400, maybe the most I saw was $600. So Nathaniel Francis, by the time the slave trials were over, he had made almost $3,000 more than anybody else. So he'd turn in a slave and Thomas Gray would be his slave's defense attorney, and Thomas Gray wouldn't offer any defense. He wouldn't say anything. 
Um, and the witness that they used over and over again was this guy named Levi Waller. And Levi Waller was a known moonshiner. And so remember that he was a known moonshiner. Okay, so he testified at um, a good number of trials. And he would always say he was at his house with his family. And that um, the first time he said that the slaves rode up on them on horseback with guns. Okay, I told you all they were poor, right? So where did these horses come from? But they all rode up on horseback with guns. And he and his family were surprised. And he and his family ran out of the house. And only he got away. Um, his family was killed by the, um, the revolutionaries. And he said that they were running after him on horseback and that he jumped over a fence and hid in some weeds. Now, they're up in the air on horseback, but these, they can't see him in these magical weeds. And, um, and, and he said he hid in the weeds, but he could look back and he could see the slaves. And they went in the house where his family was. And he knows they killed his family because they came out with his wife's necklace. Now, I don't, you all, I'm a woman. I'm, I'm a mom. You have met half of my progeny. I, um, they would have to kill me too. I could not sit in the weeds and watch my children being killed in the house by somebody. Okay, but that's just Sharon. So then the next time he said they knew the slaves were coming and they ran out and he ran away and he jumped into the magical weeds and they couldn't see him in the magical weeds. But then he crept back up to the house and looked in the window and could see them killing his family. Okay. So every time it's a different story. Um, but until Nat Turner's trial, at Nat Turner's trial, the only witness against Nat Turner was this moonshiner, Levi Waller. And Levi, I don't know whether he was drunk or just, you know, twisted up in the day. But he forgot the story about being at his house, and Levi said he was at his still. So this is the last of the trials, and all the, uh, you know, people have been hung. The Commonwealth of Virginia has been paying for the privilege of hanging all these people. And then it turns out, oh, by the way, Levi lied. And so I think their scam was being exposed. And so they um, came up with this story about Nat Turner. And, and the governor, of course, knew it was a lie because he had been following the, uh, the trials. He was getting instant transcripts. Now, instant wasn't instant like it is today. It was a few days, but he was getting them pretty quickly because in his journal, he was writing about the trials and naming slaves by name and saying, oh, he wished he could have done something to commute the sentence and, that, and talking about the evidence against them being flimsy, uh, but there was nothing he could do and stuff and everything. So, But then when Nat Turner's trial came and the information came out about Levi Waller, the moonshiner, the governor just went quiet. And you didn't hear and not, wrote nothing in the trials about 
uh, Nat Turner's trial until like a couple of weeks he said um, that he was committed to ending slavery in Virginia. So um, your second question was about the laws changing. There were um, stricter laws against free people, stricter laws against preachers because he, uh, the governor wrote in his diary that all of this was because of these these preachers and freemen. Um, but things weren't as, um, part of the narrative, I guess, that has been told is like things were so wonderful and hunky-dory for the slaves before Nat Turner. And that's just not true. It was, it was bad already. And so I don't know how you measure bad to worse. You know, it was just, it was bad. And, and um, so I don't know if in my meandering I answered what you wanted. Good afternoon, Ms. Foster. Good afternoon. <laughs> um, something that just became clear when you read uh, part one was the analogy of the web and the lies and God's truth. When I was reading particularly the part um, about Ethiopia and um, Nat Turner's mom being struck by the fact that the same God she worshipped was the God that was worshipped by uh, her slave owners and how angry she became. Mm -hmm. um, what? Well, my head hurt, by the way, after I read that that section okay. because of the different layers of racism, the different layers of understanding between the races. I just wondered how you work through that yourself in order to write that. Um, you know, for years I have had in my mind that I was going to write, I, I've always in my mind had this idea that part of the narrative has been that the only people that were taken from Africa as slaves were people who were fetish worshipers. That has been part of the narrative and that's part of we, what we've been taught to believe. But it wasn't like they were going around going, let me do you have a Jesus card? If you don't if you have one, then you get a free pass. They were just grabbing people. It didn't matter whether it was Muhammad or whoever. And so in the back of my mind, even before I had decided I was gonna write, I always had in my mind, and I guess this is called being double-minded, I had in my mind that I was going to write about somebody who was African and Christian but who was brought to the United States as a slave and them not understanding that they were both worshiping the same God. Um, the Christianity in Ethiopia is ancient Christianity. It, you know, it, it precedes European Christianity. And, um, and so it, it, despite the fact that that's not the narrative that we're taught, despite the fact that even now uh, there are people from the uh, eastern coast of Africa that I keep running into who keep saying to me, they keep trying to tell us that we don't know what we already knew long before they knew it. Um, and so I'd, I knew that I was going to write that somehow into the story. And so I'm not sure if it's a, a writing process question you're asking me. In terms of writing process, um, when I'm writing a character, I always let myself 
sit in that character. So I'm, I'm not Sharon anymore. I'm that character. And so I only know or perceive the world from where they are. And so even though Sharon knew that they both were serving the same person, Sharon as that character didn't know. And so I just let her go through that process and I have to keep that part of my brain turned off the nose. I don't know if that, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, and so I just let myself go go through it. It was, this book was, um, I probably have a lot more gray hair than I had the last time you saw me. This book was just really, um, it was inspiring, but it was also um, painful and, um, and I, I want to say at times I was tortured, you know, it was just really difficult, um, but, but I did what I was supposed to do. There were actually an, um, a number of uh, insurrections, uprisings, in addition to Nat Turner's, um, of which apparently we know perhaps even less mm -hmm. or um, let alone less accurately. And I wondered if in your research you'd come across any, um, anything to validate or to reinforce that. That there were other uprisings? Right, in other, in other states um, that we actually uh, know even less about, let alone be misinformed about. Okay. I, um, I focus very much on Virginia, between Virginia and Ethiopia. Um, so there were um, others, like there was uh, um, Gabriel Prosser in Virginia. Um, I can't think of the other guy's name right now in North Carolina. Denmark, thank you, thank you. Um, so I, I, and I mentioned them a little and I talk a little bit about, um, why is my brain blanking out? Haiti, you know, yes, Toussaint Louverture. So I, I talk a little bit about them, but my, my um, focus primarily was on Nat Turner for this. And so I don't, I don't know where I'm going to go when I start to write the next book. Um, my, my history understanding, I have like a PhD now in Nat Turner, um, but my, my, I learn the history as I'm writing. You know, we have this like broad brush that we've been given, but it's when I'm writing that I learn the the most about it. So, so I know that area really well, and and maybe my next book will take me to a to another one that has not been told or mistold. Thank you. And I've, and I've stopped sweating, too. So. Uh, we have books out in the hallway for sale, and Ms. Foster will be signing books here at this table. So please go purchase your books and come back and have them signed. Okay.
And and before you all go, I want to say to you, when I when I did this research and I found out that what we had been told wasn't true, I had to hold on to this for five years till I could finish it. And I was the only witness, but now you all are witnesses too. So it's it's not just my responsibility anymore. It's all of your responsibility. So spread the truth. Um, we're, we're